boat of pebble in the pond, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you today Matthew Parsons and also Russell Vickery. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you coming along to the conference, but also uh, finding time to sit down and spend some time with us and, and engage in a conversation for the benefit of our listeners. Tell us a little bit about yourselves. If we start with you, Russell, do you just want to give us a little bit of a, a background runway into, into who you are and, and how you got here? Uh, well, yeah, I got here because, uh, you know, I've been doing some advocacy work in domestic violence uh, from an LGBTIQ perspective for, you know, probably five or six years now, um, uh, which includes um, uh, a uh, musical program called... Uh, my Other Closet, The Cabaret, which is basically my own story of domestic violence uh, that we put on stage. Wow, so that's been running for five or six years, did you say? Yeah, our first performance of My Other Closet, The Cabaret was uh, 2014 in Sydney. Um, and we've had, I think, five seasons since then, uh, travelling around, you know, Australia. Wow, what a great experience. Mm. So how did you, uh, what about before that? How, how did you, um, what's your background? Have you been um, were you an actor? Oh, no, no. Um, while, I was, while I was actually in the relationship that, um, that was uh, uh, violent, yes. um, one of the things that I did to, to, you know, sort of help myself was whenever he wasn't around, I'd duck in somewhere and I'd just have a sing. I'd um, I changed the words of songs to sort of tell my story in a room by myself um, and used to sort of think, you know, I, I, you know, I really wish somebody would just pick up on this. Uh, after I got out of the relationship, um, singing actually became my voice. Singing was the thing that, um, that, that helped me get through the whole process. So, and so we decided that we would do... Uh, a cabaret about <laughs> domestic violence. Anyway, um, we wrote it and, uh, and yeah, we've been doing it for, for five, six, nearly six years now. And, and Matthew, you played a part in that, in that play coming together and the, the performance? Uh, yeah, so I'm um, the producer-director of My Other Closet, the Cabaret. Um, and from my perspective, developing that was... Um, really because uh, LGBTQ um, intimate partner violence is really poorly understood by the service sectors, um, the family violence and domestic violence sector at large, um, even by most LGBTIQ um, uh, services uh, don't really understand that experience well, um, and in particular um, LGBTIQ communities, let alone the larger community. So was really thinking about um, how could we get a message of awareness and education in a way that was more powerful than a pamphlet or a poster, um, especially about something that's um, complex and, and, and difficult to kind of understand for someone who's never been in that situation. You know, the myths around, well, why didn't you just leave, um, is, uh, of course, asking the wrong question. Why did that person do the abuse? But also there's something in that about um, just people really not able to understand the amount of psychological abuse that goes on in that situation and the power and control and manipulation. And that when you're in the middle of a situation uh, like that, when you're um, the victim of abuse, um, you can't see the woods from the trees and that person has um, deliberately 
manipulated you to the point where you um, don't believe uh, that you that you can leave, that there are no options in front of you. Um, and then that's particularly compounded when you're looking at LGBTQ experiences because um, in, in many places around the country still, um, there is no support available to you. And so, um, you know, if a perpetrator is telling you no one's going to believe you and um, and there's, you know, there's nothing better um, out there for you but staying here. Um, you know, that's uh, that's not far from the truth in some um, yeah. in some places where um, we still have a long way to go in the sector um, to be able to successfully and appropriately support um, victims of both intimate partner violence as well as family of origin violence who are LGBTQ. Yeah, and really, really important things there that you raised, uh, and I want to touch on that. In fact, delve deeper into that shortly. What's your background? Uh, I won't bore you with my strange career path trajectory. Uh, for a while, I've uh, sort of specialized in um, LGBTIQ inclusive practice and what does it look like for a mainstream organization to um, take the steps necessary to ensure that um, LGBTIQ people feel safe and welcome there rather than um, what's too often the case is uh, it becomes very clear very quickly for an LGBTIQ person that an organization um, doesn't actually understand their needs. Um, you know, there's a dominant kind of attitude that the approach to diversity is just treat everybody the same, right? But uh, in all actuality, everybody's different. Yes. And you know, when someone's in crisis and uh, has uh, and trauma and several layers of Im immediate uh, support needs, um, the last thing they need is for you also to be misgendering them or. Um, you know, worst case scenario, them encountering homophobia or transphobia within the organization itself. So, um, which unfortunately is still all too common. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel we're going? I mean, in the last, let's say the last five to 10, five to 10 years or so, how do you feel that we are progressing with this in society and accepting it, but also in actually addressing some of the key issues as it relates to um, you know trying to trying to help them out and actually provide services that there is no stigma around, so that we can actually have that equality that's real mm. and not just a box tick. I think Russell, that, I, I think that it depends. It, you know, it's very much a state by state basis as to where we are. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is no doubt that uh, Victoria is further ahead than any other state in um, in Australia, um, and throwing a lot of money uh, into it. Um, I think there's other states and territories in Australia where yeah, they, haven't, they still haven't even acknowledged that you know, domestic violence happens in LGBTIQ uh, relationships and um, you know, that, that's, that's a big failing. It's a big failing from my, uh, from my perspective. Even internationally, it's really an emerging um, research space. The, the conversations haven't been had about um, this topic until quite recently. But as far as actual kind of uh, programmatic responses or you know, systemic responses, um, yeah, Russell's absolutely right. Victoria um, has recently um, sprinted ahead um, since the Royal Commission and um, really been able to establish uh, some really actually world-leading um, approaches to um, you know, really taking to heart that uh, that separate but equal is never equal, and so um, 
you know, only creating a um, specialist family violence service and saying, well, that's where all the LGBTIQ people go is over to that, and then having the rest of the service sector um, only looking at men's violence against women, um, you know, in which is what a lot of the other states are still left with, if yeah. they even have a specialist service at all, which is yeah. patchy. Um, w what we're really developing is a is a um, systemic response where an LGBTIQ person, no matter whether they're rural, regional, or metro, um, is able to um, be brought into a system that is built to um, provide them with um, choice in the system and um, safe pathways. Uh, you know, I mean, for, for instance, one of the projects that we're doing um, that will be the first, to our knowledge, in Australia, an actual um, uh, family violence refuge um, uh, that is uh, going to be accredited with the Rainbow Tick, and we're doing some special, uh, two of them in fact, um, uh, mentoring with those organizations um, because of the additional risk of that, um, you know, if someone is uh, in danger to the point where they need to flee and hide, um, then uh, it's really important that you get it all right. Yeah. Um, so there's, yeah, additional uh, layers of complexity that need to be worked through in order yeah. to um, actually uh, integrate in LGBTIQ people into the existing systems um, successfully and safely. I also, look, I also think that, you know, you know 15 years ago, I, I, I um, after you know, an altercation in the relationship that I was in, uh, I contacted a service and um, instead of getting any help, uh, you know, I was told that um, that, there were, that that service had no capacity to help somebody with my lifestyle. So um, I would believe, I would believe that there are places around Australia, there are states, territories in Australia, where somebody today, like me, would make that phone call and would get that response. Is this a system problem? Is it a cultural problem? Is it a... What do you think the root of the cause of this is? Is it uh, generational? Do you think it's... What, what do you think... Uh, I, I think that it's take... Look, when you're part... When you, if you're part of the LGBTIQ community, we've spent many, many years just looking for acceptance. We have... Um, it uh, took a long time, too, well, and it's not like it's done, but it's no. on the path, but not exactly. there yet. So, that, so what we've done is we've presented our relationships as these magnificent, wonderful, um, amazing, uh, you know, relationships that, that you know, and, and I, I even, look, even in 2014 when we were um, about to run, do our first season run of My Other Closet, there was people from within our own communities that were phoning us, asking us not to put this show on because it would expose our relationships as being, in, in some instances, as being abusive as, and toxic. As toxic, yeah. You know, as as you know, the ones that 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 are talked about in general. So um, we had to think our way through that and go. But, but decided it, it, at the end that, you know, it was... And, and, and sorry, and, and, and part of the reason for that was marriage equality hadn't come in. There was this huge mm. fight to get marriage equality and they didn't want anything to taint it. We call it in our training and in the research um, 
uh, the pressure to succeed. So uh, yeah. an additional amount of pressure to show that your relationships are perfect, mm. um, just so that you can pass this bar that's been set really high. And I think um, you know that has a long-standing effect, and that's not only a societal thing, but that's also you know if you uh, if your family of origin when you came out to them weren't very accepting, you didn't get a great response. You know, um, you uh, how likely are you to go to them and then say, "I'm in a relationship that's actually abusive. I need help." Mm. You know, not very likely. No. Um, so. Yeah, it's a combination of societal, structural, historic. I guess the other thing too is that is that within our own communities, um, we didn't have a word for it. You know, mm. um, so uh, our barometer is different. But you, know, you imagine you live your life where um, you are exposed to. Um, Abuse, humiliation, discrimination, discrimination, Mm -hmm. whatever. That's that's how you're brought up. So your barometer for abuse is quite um, lower than uh, what you know a a heterosexual person who grows up who's taught that this is you know not uh, suitable behaviour, etc., etc. And so yeah, I I guess we've. it just hasn't been talked about a lot within our own community either. So yeah, well, when you look at family of origin violence in particular, um, you know, it gets reframed. We don't talk about um, until very recently, really. Uh, you know, experiences of rejection from your family um, or them, uh, you know, emotionally abusing you, trying to change you or fix you or punish you for your LGBTIQ identity, um, you know, we would sooner identify that as the parent's right to have an opinion Mm. on these topics rather than the child's right to live free from violence. Um, And so there's a whole kind of shifting of the the discourses that's that's occurring and needs to continue. It's an important distinction that you make there. It's very slight, but it's, I mean, it's critical, Mm. Uh, but very interesting as well. I think something else that Victoria has done, um, and it sounds like a, a real, you know, let's wave the flag for Victoria, but they certainly have done some uh, amazing stuff. And, you know, from a domestic violence point of view, you know, they created um, a, an organisation called Victim Survivor Advisory Council, and the Victim Survivor Advisory Council actually advises the government on policy, and they're all made up of lived experience people and diverse. Centering the voices of people with lived experience is, you know, a key um, to being able to meet those needs. Yeah. And is this part of the Rainbow Health Victoria? Is this, uh, tell me about that and how that's come about. Sure. Um, so Rainbow Health Victoria, we're a knowledge translation unit within the Australian Research Centre in Sex, uh, Health and Society yeah, yep. inside La Trobe University. Yep. So it's, we sometimes describe it as a series of Russian dolls. Um, Latrobe Uni at the top, then then Arches, the Australian Research Centre, Sex and Health, then yeah. Rainbow Health. We're the largest research centre looking at LGBTI health and well-being in, in Australia, and one of the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere, um, producing the most amount of work in that space. And because we, for many years, have been showing poor mental health and well-being outcomes, poor mental health and well-being outcomes, um, you know, it was important that we enhance the impact of that and um, do something to try to improve the situation. 
So at Rainbow Health Victoria, uh, my team and I, um, what we focus on is um, taking the, the research and the evidence base um, and synthesizing that with um, uh, best practice wisdom from the sectors um, and turning that into tools and resources that can actually help um, uh, help workers in, in various health and human services um, improve their um, LGBTI inclusive practice in order for to increase the uptake of those services. So another way of thinking about it, the, it's sort of a one step away intervention from a health promotion perspective. If we can improve the services abilities um, to uh, respond to LGBTIQ people, um, then LGBTIQ people are more likely to access those services and hopefully their health and um, well-being is then improved as a result. That's the framework. Yeah. Yeah. What's happened in Victoria? Why are they so forward thinking about this? Well, it's, it starts with the government. It yeah. starts with the government. And, you know, the government is, is, um, is a, a government that, is, uh, that has come on board and is very, very well aware of the problems. And they're a government that, um, that is prepared to tackle them. You're going to lead by example. Yes. Yeah, well, and you can't make the systemic changes that need to be made to facilitate um, equity um, without it being systemic. Too much of it in our health and human services um, it relies on individual workers or people often know that they're not doing um, what they think they should be doing, but they don't have a clear pathway out or they're, dis they're disempowered by the system around them. Mm -hmm. And so I think we've seen this explosion in the Victorian family violence sector of progress because um, you know, the Royal Commission recommendations came out and uh, the government said we will do every single one of them. Whilst it's been, you know, a lot of change very quickly in a sector, um, it's been amazing to be a part of and really people in the family violence sector in Victoria, I'm out there very often in, in out on the, you know, training workers out on the coalface. Um, people actually feel proud to be a part of that change and, and um, and some of those rifts in their uh, in their own personal values of um, I recognize that my work is excluding some people. You know, individual workers more often than not, in my experience, are um, really get into these kinds of roles because they want to help everybody, and they yeah. don't actually want to um, to be a part of a system that's not doing that. Um, and so, for for the most part what what i've experienced is that, yeah that 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 it's that it's the enabling envi environment had to be created but, and then um the individuals have just jumped right on board you know being in a family violence job is not an easy job yeah. you don't pick that job unless you um uh really have a a, a drive um to help people and make yes. people's lives better yeah. 100%. And, and so you feel like as much like government obviously really helped propel this, but do you also feel like the community was a big part that drove this in order to get the recognition and the attention that it needed for then government to take the action? Well, I certainly think that, you know, Rosie Batty in Victoria yeah. uh, losing uh, Luke yeah. um, to family violence, I mean, she was a, she was a huge part of uh, getting that Royal Commission happening. She did a lot of work to get that happening. She's amazing. Absolutely amazing, and she sat. She sat, sits on um, the Vic, uh, victim survivor advisory council yeah. um, with me. 
or I sit on there with her. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, she did a lot of the groundwork, and she's um, uh, yeah to expose what the inadequacies were in the current system. Um, and uh, you know, the Royal Commission did the rest, um, and then the government, being committed, <coughs> being committed to it. Um, you know, has gone ahead and made the changes, some of the changes, and there's others happening, um, to make sure that, uh, you know, that, that they deal with it. Yeah. Um, it, would, it would never have got as far as it did if, uh, you know, people within the services uh, weren't wanting this change as well. Do you mm. know what I mean? Mm. So uh, it, it's been a it's been a yeah. two way thing. Yeah. And I guess from a national conversation perspective, what I'd like to say is, um, last year at Stop DV, I did a um, a session, and I was really aware that um, you know talking about some of these really innovative new approaches that we are doing in in our state. Um, in a space where some other states are just having their funding slashed and they're you know they're barely surviving, um, I felt guilty, and so I apologized in my presentation, saying I, I feel a little bit terrible telling you he, coming out and telling you all these really exciting, Great. interesting things um, that we are able to do. And uh, when it went to question time, someone stood up and said, "It's not a question; it's just a comment for you, Matt." Don't apologize for actually getting the attention and the funding that these issues deserve, yes. um, because it means that we that we can we can lobby our governments, our service sectors um, for what and say it is actually possible. Look, see, it can be done, and it's, it's happening done. down there. Um, that's what we need to achieve. So that that I was really appreciated of yeah. that. Of that um, Great uh, comment. It just makes sense, doesn't it? They get together and they, they sort this out yeah. for the other states. Yeah. I mean, leading by example, finding out what's what didn't work. Now, as a result of the big change that's gone through and the um, the analysis and all the consultation that happened, mm. as a result of that, what should we be doing to advance this and make sure we're progressing with the times? And uh, it seems like common sense, but uh, yeah. anyway, hopefully more of this stuff will help. Correct. Uh, help get this well, out. information sharing. And, and is we, so we certainly, uh, I'm also conscious to not paint Victoria or the Royal Commission as a panacea. Mm. Um, there were some mistakes yeah. that are worth learning from as well. Yes. Um, but, you know, that's always the case when you're just trying to completely um, overhaul a very complex, giant yeah. system. But again, learning from those lessons that Victoria yeah. learned, I mean, I'm sure there's some. It definitely speed up the process if, mm. if other states were going to jump on board or territories. Yeah, tell me about the 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 educational part. So the past year, over fourteen hundred staff working in domestic family violence across the state of Victoria have received training in the unique experience of intimate partner and family violence for LGBTIQ. Yeah, um, so, that's that's probably that number would have been a few, a few months ago as well. I think we've I think we've gone over two thousand now. Um, so, uh, well, that was thanks to Family Safety Victoria. Um, it, well, the Royal Commission recommendation specifically had um, in there uh, a recognition that LGBTIQ people um, were not accessing the sector. Uh, a little bit after that, the um, Family Safety Victoria did a mapping exercise where they brought a bunch of LGBTIQ survivors into a room to uh, map their experiences of accessing the family violence sector and kind of opened with 
so what are your experiences of accessing the sector? And there was a resounding response from everybody in the room, what sector? Like there is nothing for us. Um, and so when these recommendations landed and we had to kind of look at uh, building something from scratch, um, it was important to first of all look at where the um, things that were in place were were happening and um, so there was two organizations Drummond Street Services and um, what's now called Thorn Harbor Health who were doing um, some responses to intimate partner violence um, but were kind of separate uh, separated literally by the river um, in, it's a north-south Melbourne thing um, uh, um, uh, but that was kind of it as far as options for mm. LGBTIQ people. So uh, it was identified that we really needed a capacity building initiative to go across the state of Victoria um, so that um, people had choice in the system and so that there was equity, especially rural regionally. Um, so we were funded to provide um, a series of training um, across the state and so the design, what the basic design of that is, um, was that 20 organizations were funded to um, be the first organizations to achieve the rainbow tick. So at least one in every single um, region was supported um, to go for the full rainbow tick accreditation, to look at all of their systems and processes and um, ensure that they were LGBTIQ inclusive across the board, across all their different frameworks, um, so that there was um, the best level possible of um, equitable um, service access and consistency to that. Mm. So we've been able to provide a whole range of training um, to uh, the frontline workers, to the leadership in those organizations that mean that what we've created essentially is a web across the state. Um, and so that's the goal. That's what we're trying to build across. We've got, uh, I think we're up to maybe four of the 20 now that have achieved the tick okay. in a couple of years. That's really good. Um, and are you getting some feedback as to the success of that as far as um, you know, the LGBT the LGBTIQ community coming in and, and, and using that and, and being feeling safer and uh, more likely to come and approach them? Is we um, Definitely anecdotally, I'm out at these services all the time and I hear the stories of yeah. the impact. Um, okay. As an example, uh, I had an organization um, who I work really closely with um, who um, just one little thing that, you, that we talk about in the training is that um, you know, you need to, the LGBTIQ people can't read your mind. You might think of yourself as um, totally um, supportive um, and that people should just somehow be able to recognize that. But we live with the filter of you're probably a homophobe, biphobe or transphobe yeah. until you prove yourself innocent for our own self-protection. And so um, this organization did some training with us and then they put a, a rainbow sticker in the window and they had rainbow lanyards. Anyone who had done the training with me was able to then earn a rainbow lanyard. Important, you don't just That's give it. out the lanyards no, for no, no reason. Um, and then I was back there a few months later and the organization said, okay, we really get it now. We had someone in our intake um, and uh, a man who told us in his intake interview, uh, I just wanna let you know that the only reason I'm even sitting down to have this conversation with you is because first I saw the flag in the window and I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. Um, then when I got to the um, desk, 
there was the rainbow lanyard and I felt comfortable enough to sit down and fill out the paperwork. The paperwork I could see myself reflected in. There wasn't anything in there that was showing that you're clearly not thinking about me as a person who could walk into this room. Um, and then now when I'm actually sitting down at intake, your rainbow lanyard as well tells me that it would be safe for me to actually tell you about my experience, which involved um, violence and sexual assault in an, in an intimate relationship. So it took all those steps for him to trust the organization um, and then they were able to work with him. That must be really rewarding to be able to see that in action and, and see it in effect uh, and, and having a real impact. Yeah, <laughs> I love my job. Yeah, I, I think it's, it truly is. I mean, it's, hmm. it's great to see that come to fruition with all the help and all the drive and all the energy that that uh, yourself and others, Russell as well, you know, driving this change. Uh, I mean, it's absolutely critical, but to see this in, in action and see it being uh, implemented must be something that's really gratifying. I think it is. I, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, too often we all see, um, we'll see, you know, services that put a rainbow flag on their front door and that's as far as they've gone, you know. That's scary stuff, yeah. um, but you know, organisations that actually take the time and do the work and really want to learn about the best way in which they're able to support uh, LGBTIQ, LGBTIQ people, um, you know, is, uh, is, is fantastic. But yeah, you know, don't just put a rainbow flag on your door, sorry. Yeah, there's more yeah. to it. That's one of the reasons why the Rainbow Tech was developed was that um, individual workers would go, I want my organization to be inclusive. I'll buy a sticker and I'll whack it up. And then a person walks in the door and gets misgendered right at the intake um, or receptionist. So um, yeah, uh, you're, you're spot on. Thank you for um, reminding us of that. Yeah. yeah, it's more than a sticker. It is more than a sticker. And, and it requires more than a sticker. Yeah. As we look to the future, how, how, what do you think the future holds and, and what changes are you hoping to see take effect in, in the next, say, five years? Um, Russell, we'll start with you. What, what do you think lies ahead for you in the, in the next five years and, and what changes do you hope to see in that time? Um, yeah, yeah, ideally, I, I, yeah, I've always wanted to think that you know, domestic violence is something that we'll never have to talk about again. Yeah. Um, you know, it, as, a, as an optimist... Um, you know, we're moving forward and, um, you know, it, it, certainly in the next five years I doubt that we won't be able to talk about it again, but certainly, you know, I'm hoping that we are a lot further um, along than what we are today um, from both uh, men's violence against women and, you know, LGBTIQ and, you know, uh, you know, all the different minority groups that, you know, are experiencing it. Um, so I really hope that everyone's a lot further along and we're closer to getting rid of it. Um, uh, for me personally, you know, I'm hoping to retire. That would be awesome. Um, and no more plays? Gee, yeah, I, I, I'd, love, I'd love never to have to do that show again. Yeah. I, I would love never to have to highlight, you know, yeah. those things. Um, there, there, will come a, there will come a time where, uh, where you know, uh, I guess it takes a lot out of me physically to do this show because yeah. I relive uh, my experience every time I'm on the stage. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, th th there is an expiry date to that. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, I, I'm, also very, I'm also very keen and I, I enjoy speaking to groups and trying to, um, you know, 
uh, show them that you know that that there that domestic violence ha- happens in many different um, many different uh, arenas. So uh, you know, I guess you know as time progresses, I, I I'd be very much happy. I'd be very happy to to continue the the speaking gigs. But you know, again, ideally, I'd love never have to talk about this subject again. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, Matt. Um, Look, I had some really uh, exciting conversations with people here at the conference. Um, uh, so thank you for the plenary uh, opportunity because um, it's really represents the first time that LGBTIQ um, family violence has been uh, talked about on the main stage at a national level. Um, and that's symbolic um, in in many ways as to where Australia is at on this um, discussion. And, uh, you know, not surprising then that I was then able to talk to a couple of um, national organizations um, about what they would like, where they approached me and said, we'd really like to think about what this means for us across the country. Um, and so that's really exciting. I'd like to be able to um, help uh, what we've been able to accomplish in Victoria um, benefit more people across the country, Um, link up some other great uh, work that's happening in New South Wales, want to acknowledge ACON does some fabulous work in this space and, um, you know, be able to see some of that stuff go national and and see a wider um, conversation in this space. The other thing that I really want to see more and more of is I I think what we're going to find as a sector is that um, including all kinds of diversity in how we approach family violence um, is beneficial, of course, um, uh, especially to those groups who aren't being well serviced. But um, including LGBTIQ people in um, the conversation and in the thinking and in the um, uh, the theoretical frameworks and, and how we're developing this sector is particularly beneficial because, um, you know, our, so much of our understandings of how family violence works, as I talked about in my plenary, um, were, are, are based on um, a, an idea of the world that only sees two genders um, and one kind of relationship. Um, a heteronormative uh, kind of starting point. And um, I believe that when you include uh, the diversity, the true diversity that's in humans, um, diverse bodies and intersex bodies and um, diverse genders of uh, trans and gender diverse people and diverse relationship types, you really um, transform the discussion there. Um, and I, would, I, would, I look forward to more of that happening because I think um, that I think the opposite of what the fear was is is what the truth is. Instead of decreasing or um, negatively impacting women, yeah, I think that the more that we are able to include uh, body diversity, sexual diversity, and gender diversity in the way that we conceptualize and respond to family violence the more that we will improve our responses to family violence for everyone. Then we need to look at um, the rigid gender norms as um, how uh, and how they um, impact everyone, not just 
um, men and women um, in heterosexual relationships, but um, including gender diverse people in those conversations, including gay and lesbian people in those conversations, in our conceptualizations of those, um, can really transform the discussion and um, and make us. Uh, come up with new and interesting ways I can't even conceive yet um, yeah. of how we might approach um, gender-based violence uh, across the space. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so well put. And one of the things that I really liked about what you've, what you've written was uh, a quote from Diane Rich Richler. Mm. Inclusion is not a strategy to help people fit into the systems and structures which exist in societies. It's about transforming those systems and structures to make it better for everyone. So... So, uh, so slight, very, you know, it's just amazing the way they've changed that. I mean, it's so powerful, that statement. Yeah, we often think about these um, diverse people as the square pegs in the round yeah. holes and the solution is just shave off the corners so that they can fit in. Fit in. <laughs> Where actually, when you uh, look at um, uh, the diversity of experiences that aren't, um, that our systems aren't um, servicing what you, and you redesign to make them more inclusive, what you find is, is that everybody benefits. You know, we absolutely have to move to an intersectionality framework or we're just, we're not even um, able to meet the needs of the majority of people. Um, and, and the other thing that she said that was really great was um, we can't call ourselves progressive unless we're all moving together at the same pace. That's good. That's well put. Is, yeah. there, is there any other final word you'd like to say, Russell? Uh, and then come back to you, Matthew, for a final word as, as we round the end of the, the final. I guess final word is that you know let's yeah let's all just keep moving forward because uh, you know there is not going to be there's not going to be dramatic change without you know uh, progress and progress is only uh, something that you'll achieve by keeping out getting out there and and advocating for what you uh, for, for what we need. So you know. Good on everyone who's out there and just keep doing it. Well put, Matthew. I guess I want to express gratitude for, um, for all the people out there working in this space. Um, uh, family violence, domestic violence is uh, poorly understood. Um, a huge issue in our society um, and and a really tough job um, and I think I just want to acknowledge that yeah when we're coming in and sort of going uh, here's all these ways that we can improve what's going on um, I think it's important to also say uh, you know how tough how tough people's jobs are already um, and that that's a big ask um, but uh, you know I guess I believe in the um, in the issue and the sector uh, so much that I believe that it's possible, um, and I'm extremely grateful when I uh, encounter people who who get it and who take it on and really uh, you know are prepared to um, take the systems and structures that have been set up in the family violence sector and look at the LGBTIQ community and go wow, these people really aren't benefiting from this yet. And um, we've, we've built this sector um, to respond to um, the epidemic that is men's violence against women. Um, but this system and structure 
could really benefit other people as well and and we have the capacity and capability to expand and meet that need and I think that's um, amazing because we know um, just how bleak the situation is otherwise yeah. Yeah. to build off that I, I want to acknowledge you both uh, thanks very much for the role that you're playing in this uh, not only Victoria but also uh, I'm sure the rest of the Australia should be watching and, and taking note of this and, and seeing how that's rolling out in Victoria and the great things that you're up to down there. So thank you for your part that you're playing in that and, and the active role you've both been uh, a part of. So thank you, Russell, and thank you, Matthew, for that. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks very, very much. much. Yeah. I appreciate it. Hello, listeners. Some of you may or may not be aware that this May the 28th, 2020, has been declared the inaugural LGBTI Domestic Violence Awareness Day. Intimate partner violence is reported at similar rates in same-gender relationships to heterosexual relationships. While some studies have found even higher rates, particularly for bisexual women and trans and gender diverse people. However, given the LGBTIQ community has struggled to gain equal legal and social recognition of their relationships, acknowledging that domestic violence can occur within these requires nuanced community and service sector education. Joining the podcast to talk about this are two people very engaged in this area in Victoria, Matthew Parsons and Russell Vickery. Matthew Parsons is the Manager of Education and Strategic Development at Rainbow Health Victoria within the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society at La Trobe University. Matthew is one of Australia's leading specialists in LGBTQ experiences of intimate partner and family of origin violence. Matthew leads the delivery of LGBTQ domestic violence and inclusive practice training to mainstream domestic violence services across Victoria and has also uh, driven LGBTQ domestic violence public educational projects and media campaigns through producing and directing the innovative educational theatre piece called My Other Closet, The Cabaret. Russell Vickery is a banker by day and a musical performer and community advocate and educator by night. Russ is passionate about dispelling the myths surrounding domestic violence and advocating for survivors. He, he is the LGBTIQ representative on the Victorian Government's Victim Survivor Advisory Council and the star of My Other Closet, The Cabaret, turning his lived experience of surviving a violent and abusive gay relationship into a vehicle for change. Regularly appearing on stage and in media interviews, um, telling his story, Russ was notably the first queer survivor of DV to share their story on national Australian television when he appeared on ABC TV's You Can't, uh, you Can't Ask That last year. 